What is up, everyone? This is Rafael Garcia here with Shawan Hughes for episode number 221 of the MMA Ratings Podcast. Uh, Shawan, how are you doing? We could just see your face and now it's blank. Did you turn your camera off? There you go. How you doing? Yeah. Shawan, how are you? Yeah, can you hear me? Yep, I can hear you now. What's that noise? Maybe it was just me. Go ahead. I'm recording. Can you hear me? <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Yeah, I can hear you. <laughs> How you doing, man? Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad at all. Ready to get some of this uh, combat sports talk out of the way. Yeah, we got quite a bit to talk about, man. We had some pretty big fights, two big events this weekend. We're going to be hitting on uh, Canelo Alvarez defeating Caleb Plant. And making history. We're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about UFC 268, where Usman defeated Kobe Covington for the second time. And Rose Namajunas did as well, too. So we're going to, and she picked up a win over Wiley Jane for the second time as well. So we're going to talk about all that. But before we do, let's start off with, as always, thanking everybody for taking the time to listen to the show. And please be sure to like, share, and subscribe as we ask you to do each and every week. As always, you can find this show across multiple podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Breaker, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, and Spotify. You can hit us up at YouTube. Please be sure to subscribe to our channel there. And you can check out all of our content over at MMA Ratings Net and MMARatings.com, which is the flagship of our um, platform here. So, Schwan, let's go ahead and jump right into this. And let's talk about UFC 268 first. Where in the main event of the evening, Kamar Usman defeated Kobe Covington via a decision. And there's a couple of things I want to talk about based off of just that point there. But before we jump into that, Sean, what did you see during this fight? Did you see any big improvements from Usman as we continue hearing about him training with Trevor Whitman and him changing up his game and what's that bringing to his style? And or did you not see enough? from Covington in, uh, Covington in an improvement standpoint based on how he fought last time? Um, I think the biggest adjustment, I mean, Usman, I really didn't, I, I mean, his jab was sharper. His combinations were a little bit sharper. He was a little bit more poised in what he was doing. Um, it was hard to see as much of the improvement because Kobe Covington actually added a couple new layers to what he was doing himself. He wasn't he still needed to lean on the volume. He still needed to lean on variety, but he was a little bit harder to hit, and he was a little bit sharper with his counters. You know, he before it was just like a lot of volume, and he's used to guys um, basically shelling up. In this fight, he was not just backing up or or being backed up by Usman. He had moments where he was consistently able to pressure Usman and get him, put him on the defensive, and overwhelm him with his combinations and his and his variety of shots and get to him. Ultimately, the, the fight was still the same with the basics of it. Colby Covington is someone who's best off the front foot, throwing volume, who overwhelms people and takes advantage of their lack of footwork. Because most guys back up in straight lines, most guys cover up. Against Usman, the reason that it's not working as much is because physically he can't consistently back Usman up without tiring himself out. And secondly, because Usman has developed his skill set enough where he can maintain positions, circling out, angling out, or just be in a position at an angle, so shots are either not hitting him completely clean or just whizzing just slightly by his head. So a lot of the real estate that Colby is used to dealing with, these guys 
a guy like Usman doesn't generate for him anymore. Usman at one point would have been a little bit easier for him to hit, but he's gotten a little bit more secure in his defense and a little bit more secure in his counters. Um, but I, I'd say the biggest improvement would have been Colby. He he looked a little bit harder to hit but once he found his footing. And instead of it being kind of like a back-and-forth fight so much, Colby was actually probably getting handled pretty easily. And then he made an adjustment and then started to pressure Usman and start to walk him down. Um, ultimately, Colby Covenant doesn't have the physicality or the power. He can't really hurt Usman like that. He's got to land five shots to every one of Usman lands. And physically, he just can't consistently pressure him without wearing himself out. And that's been that was that was the determining factor in the first fight. It's the determining factor in the second fight. Usman's physicality and his power. The skills are very important, but if Colby would have been able to push him back and pressure him, the skills would kind of fade under duress, but he's not able to do that. That's where Colby's best. And secondly, if you hit a guy five times and you kind of ding him up a little bit, but every time he touches you, he's backing you up, it's really hard for you to make up that difference, especially when your style is relying on you pressuring and moving forward. Do you think that um, Covington was more apprehensive this time around, <clears throat> excuse me, this time around because of what happened whenever he tried to stand in the pocket with Usman in the first fight? Do you think he was trying to avoid that and that led him to be a little bit more ap apprehensive in the second fight? Uh, I think what really happened wasn't that he was apprehensive. He just understood that he needed to pay more attention to his defense. Um, simply put, he he can't match Usman punch for punch. And, and it's the same reason, like, some people said, oh, well, you saw the fight with Burns, and that might give Colby Covington some courage, but Burns is a much bigger hitter than Covington. Burns is a much, much bigger hitter than him. Covington is a guy who does his damage through attrition. He throws a lot of volume, and he breaks you down over the over the distance with all the volume and the variety he lands. So in this fight, he had to be a little bit more careful. In his setups, he had to use the takedowns more because he knows that he can't back Usman up purely with his volume. He can't back him up purely with his punching power. He had to do something to offset him to create openings for his strikes, even if it risks him getting punished himself because he wasn't able to get Usman to the ground cleanly or at all. But he had by attempting the takedowns, it made Usman kind of hesitate because now Usman can't just unload and throw big bombs because if he overcommits or he misses and gets out of position, Covington's quick enough that he might get inside on him and get him down. So Usman had to be a little bit more careful in what he threw and careful in how much he threw. And that's that's one of the adjustments Covington made because he knows that he can't go punch for punch with Usman. He tried that last time. It didn't work. So he had to try to be a little bit more defensively sound and, and attack him at different levels hopefully to create openings and definitely to li limit the counters and the leads that he threw. How did you score this fight? Because there are a lot of people who are talking about the fight was closer than it looked. So how did you score this fight and, and what did you think of that? Uh, I, I still think it was like a three to two rounds. I think late in the middle of the fight, Colby kind of came back on, but I felt Usman um, landed the, throughout the fight. Usman landed the harder shots. But at, at the work rate, especially having to defend takedowns and cover multiple levels, I felt like in the middle of the fight, Colby started to gain momentum and take over. But ultimately, once he started really ramping up and starting to pressure Usman and back him up and really start putting something on him, Usman's punching power came right back into play. And then he rocked him, stumbled him, backed him up again, and reasserted control of the fight. That, Like I said, if Usman didn't have the punching power and the physicality he has, I really believe that 
Covington could wear him down and, and walk him down late. But the fact of the matter is, once he really starts getting his to for him to be effective, he's got to get his momentum going and he's got to start putting volume on you. That's fine. But the thing is, when you're moving forward and putting volume on somebody, you're putting yourself in the line of fire. Even if you're super slick defensively, you're going to take a certain amount of punishment because you're coming forward throwing shots. The easiest time to hit somebody isn't when they're covering up. It's when they're throwing punches because they're making themselves vulnerable. So Colby's whole style, it relies heavily on you covering up or you being scared to open up against them. Most people are scared of the takedown. Some people just don't have the defensive or technical skills to get away from his strikes. Usman's good enough striking-wise, but even with the mistakes he's made, when he's a half-second slow or maybe Colby's overwhelmed him so where he can't process what's happening, he's durable enough and he hits hard enough that he can he can navigate that. So Colby's never going to get that 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 combination rattled off because in between that, Usman's going to hit him once or twice and force him to reset. Good stuff there. And, and, and there's a lot of people that were talking about at least Sunday and uh, Monday that I saw were talking about Covington potentially winning a, a decision. Were there any scoring opportunities that you saw that could have maybe put this in a situation where a judge gave the fight to Covington? I don't. I just don't. I just don't think Covington ever did enough. I he the thing is, I think people saw the first fight and um, felt that Usman had become so dominant that he was able to kind of have his way with Covington. It, it, even in the first fight, Covington had flashes, but Usman kept reasserting himself. For me, the only way that Covington really would have decisively won or had a chance to win is if he would have got one or two takedowns or maybe a couple of takedowns and, and had some control. I, I understand the part of how he offset Usman and the pace I think got to Usman a little bit, but ultimately, even when he was landing a lot, even when he was getting to his spots, Usman was still landing the higher quality of shots. And even if Usman wasn't the bigger hitter, Usman took the shots better than Kobe did. You know, at no point did Kobe have him really rocked or have him off his feet. He had Kobe rocked and off his feet, I want to say on multiple occasions. So even if you're going to go with the volume and the fact that maybe he was pressuring and Usman was getting a little wild and missing, the fact of the matter was damage done and who was really dictating the pace, it's really Usman. Even when Kobe was getting the pace up to where he wanted, Usman's physicality, once again, and his punching power didn't allow him to really take over the fight. And if Kobe isn't in the red, red line, redlining, taking over the fight with volume and, acti- volume and pressure, then he's not really winning the fight. That fight never got to the pace where Kobe could really, really, really overwhelm him. Because every time he, he got close to it, Usman would land, you know, some body shots or some hard counters, and Kobe would have to reset so that he wouldn't get cleaned out. Okay, so the last question about this fight before we move on to some of the other topics that we have today is Dana White said it. Um, Kamaru Usman is the greatest welterweight fighter of all time. Do you agree? And if not, what does he have to do to get there? Well, I mean, I guess you could say he's been more dominant because he hasn't he doesn't have any losses. GSP had losses as a uh, as a welterweight. And even in some of the wins, he looked very, very vulnerable. Like when he fought BJ Penn and he beat him the first time, uh, he got really worked over in that fight. He I think he pulled it out, but but he really got handled for the first round and a half of it. Of course, there's a loss to Sarah where he tapped out to strikes. And you could say that some of the people he's fought haven't been, you know, great. Dan Hardy was a 
personality, but was Dan Hardy really a dynamic athlete or that great a striker or fighter? Not really. John Fitch, as good as he was, was really just a wrestler with some competent striking who got by on size and physicality. Um, you know, I mean, there's a lot of good guys, but the, the gap between the levels of opponents isn't as vast as, as a lot of people would make it out to be. The only difference is, for the most part, GSP, when he's won, hasn't really been touched. He's completely dominated fights from start to finish, whereas Usman, he had trouble against um, Jorge, you know, for a few moments. Against against um, Burns, he was close to being out. And even against Colby Covington, Colby Covington had won some rounds against him. And for a period of time, nobody won rounds against GSP. Like, he would just dominate and smother people. They couldn't win a second of a round. So if you look at overall dominance, you probably want to say GSP. But if you look as far as, like, having no hiccups, moving up as you ascend from one level to another, um, it's hard not to say Usman because Usman hasn't suffered any losses. He hasn't suffered any setbacks. He's just gotten better and better. And even at his, you know, it, it, during his time in the UFC, um, he, he hasn't suffered any losses. He hasn't really been put in any bad positions. He's never been finished. He hasn't been knocked out. And he seemingly becomes more of a dynamic fighter in every fight. Um, the one thing I would say is he's had a lot of rematches recently. You know, I mean, the one with Colby and Masvidal, he's defended he's defended the title, what, one, two, three, four times, and five times, and four of those times are rematches. You know, GSP never really had to rematch people for the most part because when he beat them, he beat them so soundly that there wasn't any discussion to be had. Yes, yeah, I think it's, it's it's a hard discussion for me. GSP is still my greatest fighter of all time, in my opinion. And I look at their resumes, and, I, and I, I, I'm still leaning more towards GSP's resume, even without the Michael Bisping win. Like, I look at fights like Josh Kostick, Jake Shields, Thiago Alves, Carlos Condit, John Fitch, Matt Hughes, BJ Penn. I look at those fights, and I think that they have more... Long he, he has more Hall of Fame people on his list. That's for sure, as you as you noted. Yeah, like he has more um, Hall of Fame, like Hall of Fame long term value. Like if you look at Usman's record, his most valuable win might be Tyron Woodley, might be RDA, former champion. I mean, D- Gilbert yeah. Burns, Damian Damian Maya. Yeah. But neither neither of those guys were who they were at their peak when he beat Correct. them. Exactly. Maya wasn't who he was, Woodley wasn't, and RDA wasn't. I mean, hell, if you look at it, Leon Edwards might mess around and be his most valuable win if things go full circle and Leon Edwards continues to win. So I think that um, GSP really has the leg up in that conversation right now, at least for me. What do you think he needs to do to supplant him now? Like, does he need to go up in another weight class and win a title there, or, or does he need to stay champion for five more years? How does he do it? I don't think he's going to be around for five more years. I don't think he's that invested anymore. I don't I don't really know because there's no all-time great fighters for him to fight. You know, beating Matt Hughes was big for GSP. Matt Hughes was the best welterweight previous to GSP, so GSP got to beat him. Beating BJ Penn, also who was also a welterweight champion, but a guy who had beaten an all-time great in Matt Hughes. You know, um, even beating Carlos Condit. At that point, Carlos Condit, even before he fought GSP, was probably close to being a uh, MMA Hall of Famer. Maybe not UFC Hall of Famer, but MMA Hall of Famer. So that's three Hall of Famers right there, or all-time greats in that division. I don't know. 
I don't know that there's any all-time greats that, that are within Usman's reach that he can fight. Masvidal, as we said, was he's a very good fighter. I don't think of him as a journeyman, but his record says journeyman. He, beating Colby Covington, if you look at who Colby Covington beat on his way up to the title, he beat it. He beat a faded Damian Maya. He beat RDA, who's really like a blown-up 155 guy who lost to all the elite welterweights he fought. He beat Tyron Woodley. That is that fight. That win doesn't look nearly as good as it did at the time it happened. It didn't look great then. I mean, he Kobe Covington has somehow managed to avoid all the fighters for the most part who had the physical tools and the styles to test him. Wonderboy, he didn't fight him. Ponzinibbio had the athleticism and power. Um, who else? Um, Luke Burns. He hasn't had to fight. So it's like you're fighting a guy who's on a big win streak. But a guy who's more or less beat second and third tier guys, and that guy went tooth and nail with you. Um, and then Burns, Burns had some impressive wins, but once again, Burns wins are over a faded Damian Maya, a faded Tyrone Woodley. I mean, it's I don't know who Usman could fight that would give him the cachet to pass GSP, even if we could say he's been more consistent and I guess maybe to a certain degree you could say more dominant in a certain form or fashion. But I mean, Amanda Nunes has more Hall of Famers on her record, and they were closer to their peak when she fought him. Usman doesn't have any. The only way he could have a chance of having one is if he moves up to middleweight and he fights um, he fights Israel Adesanya or maybe Robert Whitaker. He doesn't have any all-time greats on his list. So it's hard to really gauge how good he is because he's been beaten up basically on guys who are first-tier names but really, in the grand scheme of things, are probably closer to second-tier fighters than they are anything else. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. I think he has a further journey in front of him. And, and he may not be around for five years, as you said. I, I don't think he will be. I wouldn't be surprised if he called it after two more fights. Uh, let's move on, and let's talk about the co-main event of the evening, where we saw Rose Lamunis successfully defend her title against Riley Zhang, and she did so via split decision. Now, I say successful, successfully defend her title. A lot of people are saying Zhang won that fight. How did you score it? Um, I really thought Rose won it. I felt two things factored into people's um, opinions for Wiley. One, she didn't. She, she the way she got decimated in the first fight, anything was going to be an improvement, and anything was going to be looked at as her doing much better and winning. And two. She was very active. She got some takedowns. She got to certain spots. She landed a lot of shots. I don't think she landed more than Rose, but she landed a lot more. At some point, she was controlling the pace of the fight and the pace and the place of the fight. Um, I never really gave it to her like that as far as because I don't feel like she did really did any damage. For all the time she was on ground, she wasn't securely, dominantly just holding Rose down. It was a, it was a struggle to control her control position and her game position. For the most part, she was always fighting, was always tooth and nail down there. And on the feet, as much as she landed, every time Rose hit her, Rose hit her with the sharper and the harder shots. So while she improved her previous performance by a lot, I don't know that I saw her doing enough to win the fight. She did enough to make it difficult, getting the takedowns, throwing the kicks and being aggressive. But what she did, how many times did she really have Rose hurt? I don't know about that. How many times was she really had Rose in danger of being finished or had complete control and dominated her on the ground? I don't know about that either. You know, it's like once she really had her and had her in a spot where she really controlled her. I think she hurt her once in the fight. I feel like Rose hurt her throughout the fight. And that's why later on in the rounds, instead of ramping up her aggression, 
and and her pressure and using her physicality more, she didn't seem to have as much later in the fight. She used all her energy just to stay in the fight and win a couple rounds early that she didn't have anything left to turn it on late in the round, later in the fight. And later in the fight, Rose's power started to be more of a factor. And then when Rose got a top position, you could say she laid and prayed on her, but she eventually just basically dominated position. Wiley couldn't scramble. She couldn't kick her off. She couldn't do anything except stay there and try to protect herself from getting beaten up. And I don't know how you come up with a winning performance based off of that. So I want to stay on this topic about the closest of the scores before we talk about Rose a little bit more. Do you think this fight was close enough where if they were fighting in China, Zhang wins? Um, I mean, I don't think so. I mean, I, 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 it, I mean, there's obviously a lot of people who see it as such, but I just, I'm just not one of those people. I thought it was a, it was back and forth. I thought it was tightly contested, but I don't feel that. I felt that Wiley had momentum, but I don't feel like she ever really took advantage of it. At no point was there any spot where she really, even on the feet, she didn't really dominate. Even in the wrestling, she didn't really dominate her. And I, and even though she got to certain spots, I don't, I never, I never felt like she was close to the finishing rows. So. I mean, if you want to say that the judges would favor her in China, maybe. But as far as me, it, it wouldn't change anything. I mean, I don't know that it, I don't know that the scores justify the fight, but I felt I, I might have said the fight was closer. But ultimately, I still go at Rose. She landed the harder shots, and when they were in positions, superior positions, she was completely dominant in hers. Whether she did damage or not, she was completely dominant. There was nothing Wiley could do to move her or get her out of her, out of her spot. And even when Wiley was in better position, she had to work to get those positions. She had to work to maintain them. Rose, when she got her down, it was it. She just was stuck. Yeah, Rose definitely did have some more dominant positions there. Where, do, where does Rose stand in your pound-for-pound pound list right now? Uh, she's got to be. I mean, she hasn't gone on the streak that a Nunes has or Valentina, so probably right after them because she is a champion. She... She is a champion, and outside of being champion, she has beaten uh, pretty much a who's who at her weight class. So I'd say as far as women go, she's probably probably third behind Shevchenko. Shevchenko's been more dominant and more dynamic. Nunes has been more extended and moved up a weight class, but behind that, it, it has to be Rose. Fantastic there. And um, I wanted to ask, what's next for Rose? Do you think she should get the fight with Carla Esparza, or is that Marina Rodriguez fight more interesting to you? Um, I mean, I don't know that one is uh, more interesting than the other. I would think Carla deserves it. She's one of the few fighters who's actually gotten better every single time she's gotten into the cage. She's beaten a who's who in the division, and you would think she's earned her spot, but I, I don't think the UFC is very keen on Carla. They never have been. I mean, think of it. She lost her title, and I've seen people get dominated and losing their title, and they get an immediate rematch. She never got hers, probably because she doesn't sell, probably because they don't think she has appeal. So they're just going to keep making her fight. And if she's going to sit out and wait, then a lot of things are going to have to go right in her favor because Dana White does not appreciate people who make business decisions. I can agree with that there, sir. Um, let's move on. And let's talk about some other things that stood out from the card. Uh, Justin Gaethje and Michael Chandler, I love the way they booked this fight and put it on as the opening fight. Because this could have easily been the third, the second fight from the main event, but they booked it in the right place because everybody was talking about the fight. 
that night. Um, I was actually at a, a uh, I was leaving the tournament on Saturday, but everybody was talking about this fight as I was driving home because it was just a barn burner and everyone knew it was going to be a violent affair there. What did you think about what you saw from Justin Gaethje and Michael Chandler? Did any did they show you anything different that makes you think that Justin Gaethje is a formidable opponent for Charles Oliveira right now, or should the UFC go in a different direction? Um, I don't. I mean, I think Oliveira is going to fight Poirier. Um, the person who gained the most from this fight wasn't Gaethje; it was Chandler, because a lot of people expected Chan. I mean, I wasn't one of them, but a lot of people expected Chandler to get the doors blown off him because that's what's usually happened when he fights guys. As soon as he gets punched in the face, he pretty much gets finished. I mean, Oliver first time he cracked him hard, pretty much turned the fight. Pitbull cracked him hard, ended his night early. So he fought Gaethje, and Gaethje was landing big shots on him, but Chandler was surviving and firing back and in certain spots giving as good as he got. So to other people, it's going to make Chandler seem like he's really – the elite fighter said he was, that his chin isn't questionable, that he's a much tougher and grittier class of fighter. I don't agree with any of that. I think he's clearly got elite talent. He's probably got elite skill set. But he he tipped us off before when he said Justin Gaethje's hands aren't great. They aren't. What Justin Gaethje's good at is positioning, his footwork, and, and the angles he takes and his timing. He's always in position to throw hard shots. He's always in position to land hard punches. But his shots aren't super snappy. They're not super crisp, even though he strategically does the right things, like his counter uppercuts and counter all that. He does all those things well. But that's all a result of the, the footwork, the positioning, and the movement he has. It's not because his hands in and of themselves are spectacular. So Charles, uh, excuse me, Chandler was able to navigate the threat of, of Justin Gaethje even though he's a damaging fighter, he's not a particularly crisp puncher. So he's landing shots on him, but they're not the kind of kill shots. And if you really think about it, you haven't seen Justin Gaethje knock somebody out with the hands until he's kind of put them to hell with knees and kicks to the body and legs because his hands aren't spectacular. They're good, but they're not great. So now the narrative has changed. Now Chandler's considered a gritty warrior who can take as good as he can get. I and mean, he's a, you know, still a top three or four lightweight. And I'm not saying he he isn't that, but I don't think his chin is any better than it's been before. I think Gaethje's lack of craft and that specific aspect of boxing helped that. And the fact that Michael Chandler is a much better athlete than Gaethje also helped him because Gaethje couldn't unload the way he wanted to because there's a price to pay with somebody who's got Chandler's level of hand speed, foot speed, and punching power. And Gaethje didn't want to expose himself past a certain point. And when he did open up, you know, he he has some pretty big misses, and when he missed, Chandler made him pay for each and every one of them. Gaethje knows he can't he can't tiptoe that line too much. So now Gaethje's engaged in another war. He's got the, still got the reputation as a juggernaut who will wear you down and break you down. But I think people see that he's less of a destroyer than we thought he was. That knockout over uh, Cerrone and the three other guys he knocked out and Tony Ferguson tells you a lot more about those fighters than it tells you about who Justin Gaethje is as a fighter. The person who's benefited the most is Michael Chandler. He's elevated his stock in the loss, and he's changed the narrative on who and how he is as a fighter. So looking at this fight here, do you think that Justin Gaethje is, is, in, is in a great spot to become the 
Um, they get another shot at, at, at the title after Poirier and Alvera fight. Um, I mean, it's a mat. If, if Poirier wins, it's a rematch. So that the first fight was a barn burner. Once again, amazingly so, the first fight, um, Justin's leg kicks and his body kicks were tearing Poirier, but ultimately Poirier's crisp boxing, defensive boxing, and counterboxing ended his night. So, um, yeah, it'd be a rematch. So there's a storyline there, and it was a great fight, so you could sell that if Poirier wanted to go that route. Um, Oliveira, I mean, if if Oliveira wins, I mean, there's not many other people other than Gaethje who have any sort of cachet or have any sort of fan support that would gener- that, that would that would make sense for the UFC to make a fight, where they could make money off it. They've really got other guys like Islam and, and I guess, you know, uh, Benil, who you could say things about, but... Are those guys going to be box office? Do those guys have fights that create interest for you? My answer would be no. Yeah, I, I would um, agree with that as well, too. I, I think that Poirier, if he wins that that fight with Gaethje, is, is the fight to make. Um, Frankie Edgar gets stopped violently, violently again. He looked good um, in, his, in the first two rounds, and he takes a front kick to the face, and he gets... And he face plants. Is this it? Or have, have we seen the end of Frankie Edgar? Or should we see the end of Frankie Edgar? It should be. But, I mean, that's been the case for a while. Edgar's, Edgar's used his, his, in his durability and his recuperative ability. He's exhausted those long ago. And that's a big part of who he is as a fighter. It's not his footwork. It's not his defense. It's his ability. He could take huge amounts of punishment maintain his pace, huge amounts of punishment, and come back and take over a fight. He no longer can do that. The same shots that would rock him and put him on his heels that he would fight through are, are ending his night, and he's no longer a good enough athlete or quick enough to get those takedowns. And at this weight class, he doesn't – at 55, he had a speed and quickness advantage. At Bantamweight, he's actually slow. A lot of guys are much quicker than him. Even the guys who aren't fast are much quicker than him. And they're still big guys, too. So they're comparable as far as their strength. They're better athletes. And they've actually got quickness because all they've known is fighting 135ers, where his reputation as being a super athlete, super conditioned, and super quick was based on fighting guys who were basically one small 170s. So he doesn't have any margin for error in his fights. He could be looking good. He could be looking spectacular until someone touches that chin, and all of a sudden he looks terrible. And when you're at that point as a fighter, especially when you're a fighter who doesn't have knockout, one-touch power, there's not very many places for you to go as far as your career is concerned. He, he, can, make it, he can make himself a tough out, but against anybody with some poise and some athleticism, it's just as likely you're going to put him on a highlight reel. And Cheeto Vero, as good as he is, isn't a particularly dynamic fighter or particularly elite fighter as far as his grappling, striking, or wrestling skills. And if he's doing that to him, what's Jan going to do to him? What's what's Sanhagen going to do to him? What's, uh, you know, what you already did to him? What's, what's, what are the, uh, what are the better guys going to do to somebody like that who can't, who has no margin for error, still has huge technical holes and can't take abuse? I saw a very interesting, I guess, opinion that the, um, I'm sure you've seen the picture uh, of Frankie Edgar getting kicked in the face that's been circulating around social media. 
And there's a there's discussion around whether or not the photographer was wrong for sharing that picture. I don't think so at all. Yeah, it's Frankie getting his face kicked in. It is ugly. It's not what you want to see. But in sports, there have been millions of pictures of athletes getting embarrassed across professional sports in multitude of ways. You're a celebrity at that point in time, so you're going to have, you're putting yourself in that position uh, of that risk to have those types of pictures taken uh, taken of you if you don't perform. Do you think that that was a party foul, sharing that picture of, of Frankie getting kicked in the face? I don't think so. I mean, it's, it's, part, of, it's part of doing business. I mean, you share, we've shared pictures of Frankie choking someone out or beating someone in submission. How are we going to all of a sudden, you know, for you to protect him or cover up for him is in, is disingenuous to the sport. You know, you got to take, I mean, if Ronda Rousey had to deal with those memes, Holly Holm had to deal with those memes, and, you know, everybody had to deal with their stuff, it, it's, I mean, it just, that's just part of the business. If, if you don't want to get embarrassed or highlight reel, you got to get into another sport. You can't be in a competitive sport because every time you compete, you're risking that being what you're going to be known for i mean every, and you can't get to another sport everyone's been high at some point in time um yeah. let's talk about boxing where canelo alvarez he put on a highly real performance against caleb plant on saturday winning i think he stopped him in the 10th round uh i believe that's right yeah he stopped him uh, in the 10th round and it was a great showcase again by um, canelo alvarez talk about the technical diff- difficulties that Plan had and even addressing any of the attacks that Alvarez was was bringing on. The problem, the problem for Plan is this: in all the fights he's been in, he's been a clearly better boxer. He's fought good competition, but he's been, if they're at a five, he's at like an eight and a half or a nine as far as technical boxing. He's never had to go to a Plan A, Plan B, because his Plan A has been more than enough. He's been his using using his jab and using his footwork and his legs. He's essentially been able to, sh- to pitch shutouts against most of the guys he's faced. But one, most of the guys he's faced weren't top tier. They were good, but not great competition. And two, they weren't just not great athletes or dynamic athletes. They also were limited boxers, and that's what allowed him to have such success. Canelo was by far the very best technical fighter, the very best defensive fighter, and probably the best athlete he's faced in his career. So for once, he had a guy who. He could, and my question I, before the fight was like, I think Caleb Plant can box with Canelo. I have no faith that he can outfight him. And ultimately, that was all it was. He was able to make it difficult, moving around the cage, moving around the ring, sliding over, stepping over, you know, pairing, getting his jab going, timing Canelo, making little rolls and slips and dips to get away from shots. But ultimately, once Canelo started really putting him under pressure and started attacking him from multiple layers and cutting off his obvious escape his escape avenues he didn't really have anything else for him he didn't have another gear to go to he didn't have enough punching power to back him off he couldn't take canelo's shots very well he had burned a lot of energy from constantly moving to try to to relieve the pressure that canelo was putting on him and he couldn't really put any shots together on canelo he couldn't consistently land a right hand he couldn't put a three or four combination punch together he just could never really get going and canelo was just steadily walking him down Did you expect Plant to survive all 12, or was the stoppage basically what you expected? I wasn't, I didn't, 
I didn't have have any concern about the stoppage or the making a decision. My thing was I just didn't know how um, how how Caleb Plant was going to win. That's what I wanted somebody to explain to me. How was Caleb Plant going to win? And I didn't see him any way that he could win the fight. I mean, like I said, he's not. He, Canelo's the very best boxer Caleb Plant's ever faced. Caleb Plant might not be in the top seven best boxers that Canelo Alvarez has faced. And he's definitely not one of the top seven hardest hitters. And he's definitely not one of the seven most accomplished. So I needed someone to explain to me how was Caleb going to beat him? How, how would he make it difficult? That made sense to me. How he could make it awkward? How it could make um, Canelo have to go outside his comfort zone and be a little rattled? Yeah, that made perfect sense to me. But how was he actually going to beat Canelo? I didn't see it happening. And that's ultimately all I was worried about. So let me ask you this then, um, because I, there are a lot of people talking about the historical importance of Canelo's victory on Saturday. What does this mean from a boxing standpoint? How important was this win in, in that standpoint? And where does it put Canelo on like the all-time great list? Well, the thing is, he's an undisputed champion. He's a completely undisputed champion. He won all the belts, and he beat beat their title holders for them. But most importantly, it's it's how much he's fighting. Canelo is the biggest star in boxing, and he's fighting like four times a year. That's that's unheard of nowadays. You know, I mean, Mayweather didn't do that. I mean, what boxing star fights four times a year? Golovkin, as soon as he started fighting elite guys, stopped doing it. So he's a Mexican fighter who's an undisputed champion who's moved up, what, two, three weight classes, unified it two weight classes above when he got his first title, and he's faced an increasingly difficult and talented level of opposition on the way of doing it. It's like it's pretty much putting him in uh, into the category of Pacquiao and Mayweather for the amount of fights he's had, the amount of fights he's had in a year, the amount of titles he's won, and the litany of styles and quality of opponents he's faced. It's for this generation, there's nobody else who can who can really hold a hold a candle to to what Canelo's done. And the biggest indictment is all these guys are waiting for Canelo. They won't fight each other. Another guy wants to fight him, Benavidez. Him and Caleb Plant have, have been avoiding each other to get that Canelo payday. Charlo wants to fight Canelo. But instead of earning the spot by beating someone else, he wants to earn the spot by talking about Canelo and calling him out and, and, and demanding a fight. Canelo's just faced whoever he's had to face to get wherever he needs to get as a fighter. And that's making him basically, I mean, but when it's all said and done, he's going to have a record like one of the old-time 1940s fighters. He's going to have like 60, maybe 70 fights, and he's going to have competed across three or four weight classes and won titles in three or four weight classes and done so in dominant fashion. Um, he, he's pretty much going to be the fighter of this generation. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think that he's someone people stop to watch him fight um, every time he's competing. I get constant call, calls about, am I watching the fight? Where can I watch the fight, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't see, you don't see that for anyone else. So he is definitely a needle mover. He might be the last great needle mover when it comes to boxing. And in my opinion, him and Tyson Fury, that might be about it. Well, not just that. A lot of guys... He's exciting because even though he makes it look easy, Billy Joe Saunders was a long, long reigning champion. Caleb Plant has defended his title like four times. Um, even the guy he beat, one of the guys he beat, Smith, I think, 
he dominated him. People said the guy was a joke. That guy's on a four or five winning streak now and has won every single fight more impressively than it had than he did the one before. It's not just that he's making events. He's fighting ranked people with names, with extensive resumes as fighters. It's it's very hard. It's very hard to not get excited. Now, we don't think any of these guys has anything form, from him, but he's treating himself like a performer. He knows people want to see the best fight, and he's going to continue to give us as many fights as he can. So it's not just separating him historically. It's endearing him to the fans. It's something Mayweather didn't have. Mayweather had a segment of fans, but people, whether they like Canelo or not, have to respect how much activity he's had and how high level the opponents he's faced are. He made them look like nobody, but they're all very, very good fighters. You don't get to three, four title defenses and be a, a crap fighter. And he at no point had any threat of danger or harm against him or Billy Joe Saunders. That's impressive. So is Triple G next? Do they go back to that one? Well? I mean, I guess they could for money, but I mean, Triple G hasn't looked great. Triple G is like what two, three years older. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's still it still be a good fight because of their styles matchup, but I think. At this stage, unless Triple G had the performance of a lifetime, and even if he did, I think it's it's very it's considerable to think that Canelo would stop him because Canelo's not going back down away. Triple G would have to move up. Yeah, I think that that's the direction that they're going to go. Um, I don't know how they want to make it happen, but I think I that's... Mean, if they fight, he'll be another year older. That's the thing about he'll. I mean, he's already two or three. He'll be another year older because he's got to fight. The fight is going to at least take six months to build up, so that's another year. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if that plays his. I don't know if that plays his favor because he's only he will he will he will have only fought like two or three times in basically two or three years, and Canelo's would have fought eight times in two years. He's incredibly sharp and active and younger, and that's not a very good recipe. Not at all. I agree with you there. Let's uh, change our focus one more time to back to MMA. And we'll, we'll just talk about combat sports in general. Holloway, Max Holloway is coming back uh, this weekend fighting Yair Rodriguez in the main event of USC Fight Night 197. And this is a sneaky good fight. It's it's one that I am leaning Max definitely for a variety of reasons. But I think it's something that if Yair's growth has gone far enough, that, it's a, that it could be a surprise victory for him. And I want your opinion on that, Shawan. How do you see this fight breaking down between Holloway, who's been, you know, more active than Yair for sure. Yair's last fight was in, um, let me see, 2019. So he has not fought in two years where he defeated Jeremy Stevens. How do you see this fight going? And uh, why is this a big moment for both men? I don't think it's a big-time fight for Holloway. This is a stay-busy fight. He's choosing to take because he's the kind of guy who wants to stay active and wants to earn everything he has. This isn't this isn't a big-name fight, and stylistically, it's not really a big challenge for him. Yair Rodriguez is a guy who fights in spots, plain and simple. He's not a guy who gets on a jab and actually jabs you and one-twos you, and he's not a volume striker he's not defensively sound he's a guy who has big moments of offense and those big moments of offense either gain him control or win him fights outside of those big moments of offense he can be outworked he can be backed up he can be bullied he can be broken down 
but essentially he has big moments that determine the fights. You fought Jeremy Stevens. Jeremy Stevens had a lot of moments against him, but ultimately Yair's dynamic explosiveness turned the fight when he fought the Korean Zombie. Korean Zombie, it was a back and forth fight, but the Korean Zombie was out hustling and had a clear decision win coming to him before he did a spinning elbow out of the blue and knocked him out. The danger for Max is Max's durability isn't the same, his recuperative abilities aren't the same. If he gets hit with a big shot from a guy like Yuri, Yuri can be a dynamic finisher, a dynamic striker. He can end the fight just that quickly. But as far as skill for skill, Yuri hasn't shown the defensive awareness to get away from a consistent jab. He doesn't show the counter ability as far as his boxing to dissuade um, body punches. His footwork tends to fold under duress, and he hasn't shown the offensive capabilities to throw with enough volume or enough precision to outwork somebody. He's basically going to land a couple of big shots and turn your lights out, or he's going to be outclassed and outhustled on the way to a decision. So outside of his physical tools, I haven't seen anything that tells me this is a dangerous fight outside of the fact that Yair is a dangerous finisher and a dangerous athlete, explosive athlete. Skill-wise, he's never shown anything that says he could beat a prime Max Holloway. Now, Max Holloway is in prime, but he still should be good enough to um, beat Yair, Yair as long as he doesn't give him something too obvious to win the fight. Yeah, I think this is Max's fight to win as well, too. And I agree, it is a, it, it is a stay-busy fight for him. If Max wins, do you, is he in the featherweight, back in the featherweight title picture, or do you think he needs one more? I guess they'd have to be. I mean, who else would they have to fight? Volkanovski. Volkanovski's beating Ortega. He's beating... He's beaten a lot of guys. He did the same thing Max Holloway did. He beat a lot of people up on the way to his title. So by the time he got it, he didn't really have a whole lot of guys he had to he'd have to face on the other end of it, if you know what I'm saying. Like when Max got the title, he'd already beaten every contender back and forth. So by the time he got the title, there weren't a whole lot of people for him to fight. Volkanovski's the same way. You know, I mean, if Yara wins, maybe he gets the title fight. But ultimately, if Max wins... They were two really well-contested fights. They're fights the fans want to see again, so they'll probably push for that rematch. I can't imagine there's a bigger or better name they have as an option for Volkanovski. Yeah, I find it very odd that they have Yair Rodriguez at number three. Um, I mean, yeah, he's only fought three times since 2017. They still have him at number three. But they have Rodriguez at three, Ortega at two, Holloway at one, Chan Sung Jung at four, Calvin Cater at five. Maybe Chan Sung Jung, if he picks up another win, he just won in June. Yeah, maybe. But, I mean, I, I don't see Chan Sung Jung beating Volkanovski. Clearly, Cater can't beat him. I don't think Yaya Rodriguez can beat him. Ortega couldn't beat him. So, I mean, the only person who's put in a competitive fight where you could say he had a chance to win was Holloway. And, I mean... The rest of the top five don't really matter because none of them really are in Holloway or uh, Volkanovski's class as far as skill set or consistency, if we're being honest. Mm -hmm. well, is there anything else on this card from Saturday that stands out to you? Um, I think, is it Andrea Lee's fighting? Uh, let me see. Andrew Lee is fighting Cynthia Calcia. Uh, Felicia Spencer's fighting, and Courtney Casey is fighting. Uh, yes, yeah, Cynthia Calcia and Andrew Lee. I think that fight is on Saturday. 
Yeah, that's going to be a fairly big fight, not because it's two big names or because they're on such huge winning streaks in that division. Valentina is just tearing through everybody so decisively that if you win a fight, you're going to be in the mix with her. You you don't have to win two or three fights. You don't have to be two or three elite people. You just have to you have to be in a winning streak at the right time to make yourself available for a title fight with Valentina. I mean, Valentina's already beaten what? Chukagan, she beat I, she beat Andrade, who else did she beat? Um, Liz Car Liz Carmouche. She's beaten a multitude of women in that division. So when you're so dominant, that means anybody who can put a one or two, maybe two or three fight, Laura Murphy as well, put a two or three fight win streak together is gonna be open for a title fight. You know, Jennifer Maya had like two good wins. She got a title fight. Laura Murphy only had one good win, one a, one quality name win. She got a title fight. Jessica I, I don't even think she, I mean her win was Chukagan and she got a fight. And Chukagan beat I forgot who she beat to get her, but basically you win one or two big fights, you're in with Valentina. So this is what makes this fight exciting or interesting because Calvillo, even though she's been on the, had a rough go of it, she beats Andrea Lee. She's probably a fight away from fighting Valentina. Andrea Lee's already put one fight. This is two fights together. She's already got a recent win over Antonita Shenchenko. Maybe they could spin that argument to create interest for that fight. Um, the fight itself shouldn't be spectacular because neither one of them are great finishers or, or dynamic athletes, but it should be fairly fairly closely com contested because you have two fighters who aren't known for doing a huge amounts of damage on the feet, but two fighters who are skilled enough across the board where they can't be completely exposed or, um, or uh, punished in just any area. You can't just take one down and dominate or just stay on the feet and dominate. It should be a tough, fairly competitive fight, but the, the stakes for the fight are what makes it more important than the actual fight itself. Yeah, um, I am interested in the Julio Arce uh, Song Yudong fight. I think that's a big one at uh, Bantamweight as well, too. That'll be an important fight. I want to see what that really looks like. Or is that that's that that's that featherweight dodge? I'm sorry, but uh, Julio Arce has some has some good wins, and and Song Yudong is a is a true threat as well, too. So I think that that's an interesting matchup as well. Uh, Shawan, we're gonna close it out, man. Why don't you let everybody know what you're working on? Um, I worked on some articles, talked about the, where it went all wrong with Carolina Kovacavich. Um, did another article about why camps fight at different weight classes. And then I did a br early uh, breakdown of the uh, potential, the oncoming Nunez versus um, Pena fight. Um, I, I want to say one more thing before we finish. Uh, I know we don't talk about this Bellator events as much as we, we you know, maybe we should. But uh, recently, they had a fight, Gallagher versus Patchy Mix, which Gallagher lost by submission in the third round. Um, this has been something that has put a spotlight on Bellator's matchmaking, because Gallagher is like on a three or four fight win streak. And previous to his loss to Ricky Bandejas, he would have been on like a four or five win streak, fight win streak. And even the first time he stepped up, he didn't just lose, he, lo he lost badly in this fight. He was competitive for like a round and a half, but then he was summarily dispatched. I think largely it's because he's not a standout athlete. He's not a dynamic type fighter in durability or athleticism. But the fact of the matter is he's got a huge personality. He's got a certain charisma and a charm, but he doesn't have the goods necessary to justify the attention and the fame and the popularity he's gotten through Bellator. 
And had he been matched up a little bit tougher, he may have never, never been in position to have the fame and notoriety he has because he never would have put enough wins together. Even if you've got charisma and charm, you have to put wins together for you to really get momentum. We, we use Angela Hill as that example. She's a great personality, great looking, uh, has all these interests, but she can never put enough legitimate wins together to turn the corner. James Gallagher has been kind of been spoon-fed some tough but very limited opponents that allowed him to put three, four fight win streaks together to make him seem like something he's not. And it's a situation where we, when you build a fighter up like that, when they get to the big test, they, they don't even have the option of losing competitively. They have to win because everybody sees through the opposition they face, whether they're talented or not. You've seen that they haven't really been tested. They're not really proven. And there's another agenda um, being used to manipulate them and put them in positions. So this loss to Patchy Mix is kind of calls into question his whole career at Bellator. Because so far he's only beaten third and fourth tier fighters. When he beat a, a low, a high third tier fighter, fought one, he got knocked out. When he fought a, a second, maybe low first tier fighter for Bellator, he got submitted. And now there's got to be real questions about what to do with him and how to move him. He's got very, very real limitations and it's going to be hard to t take a guy with that kind of personality and hide him, fight, move him back down to fight third or fourth tier fighters to build him back up. It's like the jig has been up, the curtain's been pulled back, and now he's going to really have a tough go of it because at this point there's no going back. For him to have any shot of legitimacy, he's going to have to increase the level of opposition, and I just don't know physically that he has the skills, he, the physical tools to do so, and I don't know that the, the training he's gotten, the skills he's developed so far, cover or master those skills well enough for him to succeed at a higher level so it's an interesting dynamic of what happens when you don't develop somebody appropriately or when you kind of enable their ride their ascension in the case of like it's the same thing as mvp except mvp had legitimate wins over you know some lower second tier fighters he beat paul daly nobody could take that away from him. he he was competitive against lima before he got knocked out and then he beat lima so now you can look back on all of those people he fought and say it wasn't that he was he wasn't good enough. They were just keeping him busy. Whereas Gallagher now, you have to call his whole career into question. He put up a good fight, but at this stage, he needed a win to justify his popularity and his swag and his attitude. And he did not get one. He was decisively finished. Yeah, that was a pretty good breakdown there, sir. Um, well, I meant to ask you too. What else are you looking forward to from a boxing standpoint? Is there anything else that we should be keeping an eye on? Um. I mean, of course, we got Golovkin's going to be fighting. It's not an elite guy or a guy who's been super active, but it should be a good give-and-take fight. You've got a gay Rosado. I think he's fighting Jamie Muniga um, sometime very soon. And then the, the big fight will be uh, Sean Porter versus Terrence Crawford. That'll be for, I mean, Crawford's considered a pound-for-pound -pound entrant. Uh, the best thing about Porter is, Porter's face all the name guys in a welterweight almost. The best welterweights, he's faced them all, won some, lost some, but he's never been easy work for anybody. He's going to be the litmus test by which we just we find out if Terrence Crawford is exactly who he says he is at welterweight or is he great at junior welterweight and really just been a guy beating up on has-beens who are shop-worn at welterweight. So that's going to be the fight that's ultimately going to possibly set the table for Errol Spence, but this is a fight that uh, if if Crawford loses his whole time at welterweight, will be seen as somewhat of a sham. He he needs to win this fight, and he needs to win this fight 
uh, fairly convincingly. Good stuff there, sir. So I'm going to go ahead and close out. But thank you for joining me for another week of the MMA Ratings Podcast. We'll be back for episode number 223 next week. So thank you, everyone, for listening to our content. Please be sure to like, share, and subscribe. And we'll holler at you then. All right. Everybody take it easy.